Hi everyone. Jake and I are so grateful for all of your support. We want to remind all of our listeners to always dive within the limits of your training and experience and always follow the advice of your instructors and dive masters. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for formal dive instruction. We are so thrilled to have this space to share our stories and experiences and thankful we get to share them with all of you. Stay safe out there and always have fun. Welcome back to Free Descent, everybody. Uh, Miles here as well as Jake, and we have two very special guests, um, some of my good friends, Jack Bundle and Josh Martin. And hey. yeah, welcome guys. How we doing? Welcome to Free Descent. <laughs> um, so just to give a quick introduction, we know each other from my time traveling in Central America, and they were working on quite a cool project and boat when I was working on my professional scuba um, stuff. So yeah, it was a great friendship and I'm really excited that we're having them on and continuing it from here. So without further ado, Jack or Josh, do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Take it away, hey, Jack. Josh. <laughs> now, now you, boss. <laughs> right, um, so I'm Jack. Miles um, said we met in a, we met in Costa Rica uh, in Golfito, tiny little town in which no one even knows about in Costa Rica. Um, I'm from the UK, and I spent um, it was a year and a half I spent in total volunteering for this charity uh, called Earth Race Conservation, which started in Costa Rica and took us took us all around Central America and to the north most northern part of Southern America too. So. Um, yeah, that's a very brief thing about me, really. So take it away, Josh. Right. Well, um, I'm Josh. I'm a I'm a Kiwi from New Zealand. Um, I'm not right. I've, uh, I've yeah. I mean, I I live in London now, but I have just been um, just come back here after doing two and a half years on the Earth Race boat Modoc. Um, no, I'm the captain for many many years, um, but. Uh, my first time actually able to work with him and do some pretty cool stuff like what he does and yeah. So how did you guys how did you guys get involved with Earthrace? So um I me and Jack actually worked together in London um as security engineers. Many, um, many moons yeah. ago, yeah. Many moons ago. Uh <laughs> this would have been about ooh, Three and 20, a half years ago, must we, have been we 2019, left. I reckon it was about that sort of time. Yeah. In 2018, we started working together. Yeah. So um, I know the captain since I was like 10. Like he's a family friend of mine. My mum's donated cars and all this sort of stuff. And he just was this dodgy guy that used to come sleep on our couch, really. Tell us all these <laughs> cool stories about all this amazing conservation work that he does around the world. Um, he's quite he's quite a superstar in New Zealand, actually. Everybody, yeah. everybody, everybody knows who Peter Thune is in in New Zealand. So he was like a bit of a hero to you, really, wasn't he, Josh? When you were yeah, younger? he was. Yeah, he was. You know, everyone else used to have the Lamborghinis, cars, posters in their bedroom wall. I used to have the Peter Thune Earth Race boat in the in my room as the poster. <laughs> um, 
And then um, I got a phone call from him when I was in, working in London, and he said that we need some technical people to come help us um, do some conservation work in Central America, in Costa Rica. And um, I called the boss and I said, look, I'm going to be going over to Central America, and then went to site and started working with Jack and said, uh, mate, I'm going to be leaving the company. I'm going to go work in Central America doing all this stuff. And Jack said, well, I'm coming with you. <laughs> that's, that's about where it went, really. Um, it started off, actually, we were doing um, the first project that they were, they were doing in Costa Rica was installing CCTV cameras inside the, inside the national parks to try and catch people as they went in, because uh, obviously it's illegal to go into the national parks without permits. And we were doing CCTV in London at the time. And it was like one of those... It was like one of those moments where you thought, well, I'm standing here in London. It was winter as well. I was like, I would much rather be doing this in Central America, installing CCTV in the jungle. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's a, bit, yeah. it's a bit more climate friendly. Yeah, right. It's one of those things. It was, it was, it was, almost, it was very impulsive, really. I think it was only about two and a half, three weeks after we, Josh and I had that conversation, and I invited myself on his adventure. Okay, Take so... up our tools and head away on our toes. <laughs> so. Tell me more about Earth Race. I know that, you know, you mentioned a little bit about what you were doing, but give us a broad overview of what's the general mission of Earth Race. So Earth Race, it's been around for a very long time. Um, it's been around for at least 15 years, I'd say. Um, and it started off as just being um, Pete. He worked in um, in the oil and gas industry and he, he figured out that, this is not the way forward. We need to start saving our planet a little bit more. So he built a boat, um, which ran off biodiesel made out of waste cooking oil. So, you know, go to your chip shop, get the oil out of the deep fryer and pretty much turn that into diesel. And he could travel halfway around the world on one tank of gas when this boat that he built, he still holds the record for um, the uh, fastest time to travel around the globe in a power boat um out out of biodiesel as well so um it started from there i guess and then he moved into starting to save marine uh marine creatures and jungle uh like terrestrial animals in brazil asia he's been all over the place um and then uh yeah all of his missions sort of ended up in in those areas that that sort of stuff is a big problem mm. um and then he's now started um, working a lot more in Central America, so um, Costa Rica, Panama mainly, in the jungles and marine protected areas there. And we assist governments, essentially. We don't go out and just be these guys telling everyone off. We, we assist, assist government agents, yeah. uh, agencies to actually facilitate these patrols and you know, so we have all of the equipment that you're probably going to need to be able to do it. Let us help you. Yeah, I think that's one of the important things, actually, is there's a lot of work to be done in, in places like this. There's massive, massive areas. So let's take Costa Rica, for example. Corcovado National Park is enormous, and the Costa Rican rangers don't by any means have the facilities to protect it all. So we come in as a as a charity that provides a full service completely for free to these, to these teams of people, including manpower and fuel and boats and food and whatever they think they might need to try and help them with their mission which because these guys are as motivated as as we are quite a lot of them aren't just doing it as a job you know they they do realize the importance of 
of saving these environments. It's it's hard. It's it's plenty of work to be done. Um, but but it's so it's, so, it's, well. so it's less it's less vigilante and and much more almost government contractor. But you're coming in obviously as volunteers and sort of o- ocean and conservation yeah, we, lovers. Find in many places we don't have like jurisdiction. You have to pair with rangers um, to have jurisdiction to to convict people for doing things in these national parks, illegal activity in these national parks. Um, so mainly mainly yeah mainly a support unit and um contracted by by government agencies so when that happens do they contract and they contact pete and then pete decides <laughs> which missions you guys are going to go on or how is this discussed it's it's really difficult um you you have to build relationships with the with the countries as you can imagine you can't it's hard for you to just just sort of approach approach your approach your country and Everyone understands what work needs to be done, but they need to. You need to build a relationship with these people so they can understand that your intentions are right, you know, and, and that they can trust to take you into these hostile environments and that you can fend for yourself, you know. Um, and also, and also that you're not just coming in and telling them what to do. We're here to work with you guys in the way that yeah. you guys operate, and we provide a little bit of expertise and these facilities that we have as well it's not just a group of guys coming in and going you're doing this wrong Uh, we need to change that so on the boat is it just guys or can girls join or what's like what's the boat look like what's daily life on modoc look like uh so the boat itself now is a 1944 x a uh, navy vessel that used to be the tugboat to tug all the broken battleships out of World War Two out of Japan. It is mainly a male crew, um, and I don't know whether that's just due to the lifestyle or the um, the day to day operations. But there's a lot of maintenance and a lot of things going on. But females are welcome to join, and we've had some absolute rock star females come yeah, come through sure. and show us all up to be fair yeah <laughs> if i if i do remember so, if i do remember correctly i was invited to join this boat at one point or another mm-hmm. and yeah. so yep. i figured that i could have but it seemed like a hard lifestyle i saw where you guys slept i wasn't really i wasn't really into it <laughs> Yeah, I mean, 1944 was quite a long time ago, um, and you can imagine it's something that's still floating on that on the water since 1944. There's a, it's quite a lot of work that needed to be done on the boat for it to maintain doing what it was it was doing, you know. So um, that was what that was the balance between us: what we did in the national parks and what we and all the time we weren't working with the rangers in the national parks, we were renovating and upkeeping the the ship because the ship was basically the base of operations. You know, we had. All the rangers would come and stay on board when we went on voyages. We'd we'd use the ship for everything, really. That's where everything happened. So you needed to be kept kept well. Um, so you got brought down to uh, Costa Rica to, as, as, as presumably to start with, you were installing the CCTV cameras, working working on land mainly. What was the conversation mm-hmm. like when uh, when when Pete says, "All right, we're gonna get we're gonna get off land. We're gonna we're gonna go and pivot to looking at the." Uh, over the Chinese overseas fleet doing squid fishing, mm. uh, which was the subject of this uh, this documentary in the New Yorker. It was it was exciting, man. Um, it was it was it was one of those those missions which um, we'd we'd been, been we'd been talking about it for a while. Pete had definitely himself been talking about it for quite a while. Um, it's obviously quite a big thing to take a ship like that with the resources that it required over to the Galapagos Islands and 
further than the Galapagos Islands to to view this squid fishing fleet. There's a lot of moving parts in a, in an operation like that. So um, we we were all up for the challenge. That was one of the one of the things about Modoc is you, you no challenge was too big. You know, everyone just had to you, everyone sort of pulled their socks up and 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 did what they needed to do to make things happen. And um, it was exciting. Yeah, it was really exciting. Like it was. There's a lot of stuff out there that that doesn't get filmed. You know, a lot of things that happen in the world, especially in the in the ocean, the international waters, is such a derelict place, and people don't have access to that. So it was the idea that we were going to be a part of of a, a a team of people that were going to document some of the things that were happening out there that people had never seen before. Was I felt very lucky. So fill us in on like the main prep. What were some of the main things that you had to do to? start on the quest or like this mission to get out to the squid fleet to get down to the Galapagos from Costa Rica to really like start in on this project well I guess so it started off with um maintenance really on the boat so we, yeah. we had the information and we said right these are our dates and we're going to be going out to the Galapagos we need to make sure the boat is up for the task because essentially we're offshore for at least three or four weeks and i say offshore away away from a you know from a major town um so the start was just making sure that we had the fridges working the freezers working the engines running perfectly the seals and everything operating well and our essentially our test run for all of that was taking the ship from uh from Costa Rica down to Ecuador into Manta. That was sort of our mm. first mission to see the boat under operation for, it was about two weeks, wasn't it? It was about yeah, a two week sort of round the clock operation. Cause that's one of the things that you mentioned there. about a tugboat is um, they are, um, they're very, very seaworthy vessels. They've got big displacement holes, um, huge propeller, but they're, they're they're quite slow. They're not meant mm. for speed, you know. They're meant for dura- like for durability and for distance. So and strength um, too to be yeah, able to tow strength, stuff. Exactly. So it so when you're traveling from Costa Rica down to um, down to Manta in Ecuador, which is how many nautical miles would you say that is, Josh? It's got oh, it's a thousand. A thousand, yeah, something like that. And you're doing at that at an average speed of seven knots. Um, it, it does make you realize how far it is. <laughs> So yeah. Yeah, it yeah. takes a lot. The, the boat's under a lot of strain. You know, the crew were under a lot of strain. That was another big thing. You had to make sure you had crew that were comfortable being away at sea for that period of time. And everyone had their jobs and everyone had their roles to play on board. Um, so provisions. get into that a little bit. What was your role? What was Josh's role? What was important about it? Uh, so my Sorry. role... Oh, you carry on, Jack. Oh, no, no, no. Um, I was just going to say um, there was... On the voyage, um, I was I was an assistant engineer on the voyage, so we used to we used to do around the as we were running for for sort of twenty four hours a day. We'd have to have different people in doing engine room checks at a certain time. So I was doing a twelve till four midday, and then a midnight till four a.m. engine room watch on the voyage down. Um, and that was basically we would change engines every twenty four hours. <clears throat> so any work that needed to be done on the other engine while while we were while we were using the other one, we had to do. We had to make sure the fuel levels were topped up, oil levels were topped up. Um, just basically making sure everything was ticking over for the time where we were going and trying to keep ourselves strong. Also, you know, trying to like having constantly rocking around. You're using so much more energy because your boats the boats listing left and right and 
um, you are you're just trying to sort of maintain your maintain your strength and make sure everything's just ticking over, I suppose. On the ship for almost most of my time, I was the first officer, but also became a lot of the engineer side of things too. So I sort of was this in between thing. But when we're under voyage, I was uh, pretty much actually on the same shift as what Jack was, but I was steering the ship. Jack was making sure it kept running. So, um, the dream team. Yeah, I was driving. Yeah, the dream team plus Josh. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, and also it sort of makes you understand what things could happen and, you know, what things to keep an eye out for. You know, like this engine's using a little bit more oil than this engine. So, we need to make sure we top this one up more regularly than that one. It was, it was a very, big thing for the voyage down to Manta to start with and then and then it was pretty much all hands on deck and off we go. So yeah. you get to Manta and I assume from there you you're preparing your your provisioning and, and heading out uh, to the Galapagos. Yep. What what's the feeling on board as you start approaching the 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 overseas fleet? I mean I've we've we've all heard stories of, you know, it's a pretty brutal uh brutal environment and, and they don't take too kindly to outsiders. What was the what was the feeling on board as you start to approach the fleet? Uh, mm. Yeah, so when we when we left the Galapagos Islands to actually head out into the international waters, I don't think anyone really knew what to expect. No, no. one really had any feelings about you know what's going on. We didn't really have a full insight into it. And then one night it was nine o'clock at night or something. And we were just sort of cruising through and the whole horizon just absolutely lit up. Yeah. Like, like it was time. like you just walked into a city and it was insane. <laughs> yeah. They would like, the sun started to drop and, 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 a, and a light would pop on in the, on the horizon and you'd be standing, people were sort of starting to gather in the bridge and you'd we'd be counting. So, oh, there was one. And then there were five lights on the horizon. Then there were 10 lights on. The, and it was like, I think at this point we we counted up to like like seventy or eighty lights just on the horizon, and that was before we'd even got into the center of where we were supposed to be in the in the center of the fishing fleet, you know. And we were we were mind blown because you're in the middle of nowhere, right? You've just spent like five days at sea, not seen a single boat really around you. There's been completely clear horizons, and then uh, suddenly one night there's just lights popping up in the distance, and you know that there's no land around you. It's it's such it was such a surreal feeling. It was really yeah. yeah. And these are the lights from the squid fishing vessels that are shining down into the water True. to attract the That's squid. That's correct. Yeah, they use very, very powerful lights um, on board. So from yeah. there, once you once you saw the lights, were you cued to like, okay, we're going to park Modoc here, and then we're going to go out on the Zodiac, or like, what was the plan from there? Um, I think it was first night was a Sunday night, if I remember correctly, um, and we pretty much just kept trailing into the squid fishing fleet and our radar just lit up like there were boats completely around us and then the call was made that we're going to jump in the raptor which is our uh, big seven i think it's seven point uh four meters uh tender uh pontoon uh rigid hull tender um and we were just going to go up to the boats and try and do something and um that night we actually went up to one of the boats and we told uh our one of the photographers ed who spoke mandarin he said over the radio we're in new zealand film uh 
film crew from New Zealand who film TV uh, fishing episodes on TV, and we want to see what your fishing equipment's like and what you're doing. So we just came under this whole guise of uh, a, just a fishing TV show, and they ended up actually getting on board that day and wow. going through the boat. And Wait, it were was you insane. guys? Were you guys on boat? Like, or did you stay no, in the Zodiac? Only the film crew. Only the film crew got on board. Um, so they took so the a lot chance. of the, the, the a lot of the footage that we saw in that New Yorker documentary that was taken with you guys going up to the boat, then mm-hmm. dropping off the film crew, and then picking them up. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes, it takes wow. it takes a bit of time. You have to. Sorry, Joe. No, no, go ahead, please. I'm, I'm, I'm say... just. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. Oh, I just wanted to uh, mention, like Josh, Josh mentioned the fact that we were a New Zealand like film um, fish, filming like a fishing program, um, and it's because you, you have to be very careful when you approach boats like this. You know, you don't. There's quite a lot of stigma around these fishing vessels that are in international waters, even though I, I might add they're not doing anything illegal. You know, all of the thing, every all the work that they were doing was legal um, in terms of the boat that we visited on that first night. And the amount of fish they're pulling out of the water is a legal amount of fish. Um, you have to be very careful when you approach them. So to, to say that we were just filming a fishing documentary was, was almost like a, it was almost like, oh, we're not here to be confrontational. You know, we don't want to try and pick holes in what you're doing um, and trying to build a relationship with these people to, to, to let them understand that we are just, we are just normal people just doing some, doing some filming. We weren't doing anything. We didn't want to be, cause any harm, you know? You weren't going to use that footage to trap any individual boat or captain or person. That, no, that was never the point um, at that time. It was never to, to, to pick holes in individuals it was more to just highlight a, a global problem rather than um, because you're never gonna you're never gonna achieve anything if you start picking holes in people and the captains and saying this boat was the problem that you need to you need to just shine a light on on a, on a much larger problem um so you had to build a relationship with these people to do that you know and luckily luckily we did you know we spoke to some crew members as ed was the the director of one of these um one of the outlaw ocean films he um he spoke he spoke to him was able to speak to him over the radio and they they allowed him on board and um he got to interview some of the crew which was which was amazing you know it's something that's never never happened before um, no one's ever really got to speak to these crew while they're out at waters out at sea so how many days were you guys out there I think we were in amongst the squid fleet for was it seven or ten days yeah i think it was yeah it must like, I tell you, it feels like it was it feels like we were out there for ages it was probably about probably about two weeks i reckon 10 days to two weeks we were out there yeah uh, so i think i think it was about 10 days worth of um or like nine or ten days actually in amongst the fleet and then mm. it was about a two-day voyage either side or three-day voyage either side to actually get to where they were outside of the actual Galapagos Islands themselves. Yeah, that sounds about right. So, was every day as successful as the first? Were you able to get on the get on the ship, video, get off successfully? No, uh, no, no, never no got onto another boat. No, and some of them were very, 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 very hostile. Some of them said they didn't want anything, anything to do with us. They wanted us to go away. You know, they had guards that were on the boat that were looking over. They really weren't interested in, in what we were doing. Um, they had they had sea anchors out, and like as soon as they saw the boat, our boat coming up, knowing that we weren't part of the squid fishing fleet, they would pull their sea anchors in, which is actually a pretty big operation. Mm-hmm. They'd pull in their sea anchors and actually leave. They'd, they'd just head off. So yeah. were there were there times where you guys were nervous and you know a little bit anxious about you know you don't know these people you don't know what kind of equipment they have on board and stuff I I, I know there was one it was one evening where we um 
we went up to one of the boats and um, we offered them, we tried to offer them a watermelon um, because we wanted to kind of make some sort of peace. And I, I remember standing on the bow of the Raptor and I held up this watermelon and I was like to the guy like, please take it, you know, like, this is a peace offering. And um, they ended up saying, no, 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 no. And um, they, they, threw us a, they threw us a bag over the side um, and the, the, bag had, the bag had loads and loads and loads of calamari in it. Um, and it was, it was like a, it was almost like a, at that point, it kind of made you realize that these, I know it's, it's obvious to say, but they are just, they're just normal people, you know, they're out, they're earning money. And um, at, at this specific boat, of course, there are lots of different boats with lots of other problems on them. But this one that we spoke to this night, they, they threw us over some, they threw us over some calamari and they were smiling at us and saying hello. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's obviously very intimidating coming up to a boat like this. I mean, they've got like 12, 12 jigs on either side of the boat these massive powerful lights either side you know you can hear the sounds of the the jigs running over and over the metal clanking as they pull the as it pulls the lines back in again so it's quite it's quite a sight so i mean obviously and there's black squid ink all over the place so it's they do look quite intimidating the boats themselves for sure what was your main overall big picture goal in helping to get this footage so like what do you guys hope happens or like hope to do from here i think um so when we were operating the boat our focus was on getting the film crew the stuff that they needed and that was just whatever time of the day whenever we needed to would go out and actually do these uh do these runs and try and get all the footage that we can um but then after we sort of finished the filming, it was sort of like we want to shine a light on this and at least stop it from happening. There was a there was a thing that one of the captains was saying was that the fishing's not very good this year. And we're sort of looking at ourselves and we go, well, you pull in like three ton of squid a day and there's 500 ships in this fleet. Mm. No, like obviously it's not going to be very good fishing because there's nothing left. Yeah, um, right. but like like Jack was saying, like all the crew are just normal people crewing on a boat. It's not actually them. Like they're nice, happy, and you know, just doing their thing. And like you said, you know, they gave us a whole load of squid. And um, on this specific you know, just... boat, obviously, there are examples of other boats where the crew are treated awfully. Um, the captain oh, is horrible. This specific one that we spoke to, obviously, most of the ones that that are, do treat their crew like that and have like, allegations against them, they're not going to be interested at all in, in, in being interviewed by us. So, yeah, yeah I mean, the, I suppose the goal is, yeah, as, as Josh said, it's just to shine a light on it, really. Like, no one really no one really thinks that much about it. Like, um, it's uh, actually Ian released a, an article, and I think the, the title of the article was The, the Global Problem to a, to, a, to a Modern Appetizer or something like that. You know, when you go to a restaurant, but say ten years ago, you wouldn't you wouldn't really see calamari sitting on a menu. It used to be like a treat, and now no matter where you go, anywhere you can always see calamari sitting on the on the menu. And it's just trying yeah. to like draw attention, I suppose, to why that is. You know, why there is so much calamari is so accessible now across the whole world, and what the problems of that are. You know, because there are a lot of problems with that. So that was the goal really of this mission, and that's what Ian's goal is. Um, for this specific part of his project was to shine a light on on that on that side of things. Is there anything that maybe didn't get into the documentary, but you think is important for us to either see or know about? 
like we say, and it's and it's quite similar to the people that we see in, in Costa Rica in the jungles or um, in these marine protected areas as well. It's like the a lot of them are not bad. Like the the crew, the people pulling in the squid, the the people that's in the jungle, they're not bad people. They're just there to try and feed their family or to get some money or you know might be in debt here or there and and they need to they just need that money like these people aren't actually bad people but what they're doing is really bad and it is ruining the ocean as well you know yeah i mean ian's project has been is fantastic they've they've released loads of little documentaries um ed and will um the two guys that directed a lot of ian's projects have, have drawn attention to um lots of different parts of the of the problem they they actually tracked a, sh- a shipment that left from the galapagos islands and they tracked it all the way back to china and then saw it get shipped around the whole european union the whole eu um so i think like um it's just i don't know it's it's, it's, I think we live in a world nowadays where people are a lot more in touch with what they're what they're eating and where food is coming from. You know, there's a lot more vegetarians and vegans knocking about. You know, people are thinking a lot, are being a lot more careful about what they eat. And this is no different, I suppose, just because it comes from the sea and it's as, uh, below the sea level. You can't see it. Doesn't mean that it's not being not being damaged massively, as you guys probably know very much yourselves. You know, it's, totally. It's, I think uh, those are I think those are great things to highlight what kind of diving happened in this project and like any kind of diving that happened on board MODOK? We love to dive on MODOK. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the first, the first piece of diving that we did was cleaning the hull, so we did actually get there quickly. <laughs> there was no barnacles. Yeah, right. Barnacle <laughs> scraping sounds like fun. Yeah, that's it. Paint scrapers. Because actually Paint the glasses, scrapers yeah. crabs. If you enter the Galapagos with any barnacles on the bottom of your boat, they have rights to send you away. So you got, we've got 45 meters of boat here that we we have to clean thoroughly. So that was quite. I took about two weeks, I think. Um, yeah, every time but, every time I hear about that, I'm really glad that I never joined because <laughs> I feel I feel that would have been my job. cleaner. Oh, you don't understand. To be fair, yeah. To be fair, the. Cleaning the hull is actually quite a good thing for um, getting a lot of skills in diving yeah. set up because there's a lot of breath control, control and there's a lot of buoyancy <laughs> control you have to do. Um, yeah, no, you're right. With doing it, like it is actually a good skill for learning to dive, or even even at medium to advanced divers. Like I, I learned some stuff in cleaning the hull, and I'm probably sitting somewhere over 100 dives at the moment. Yeah, right. I mean, but so... in terms of interesting diving. <laughs> Yeah, an um, actual diving. That yeah, an actual diving. Peach filmed this um, this wicked shot where um, we, I dropped him in the water at the bow of this of this boat. We spoke to the captain. We said we're going to throw a diver in the water, and um, Pete grabbed a GoPro and he, he he dived in the bow of this boat and allowed the it might have been his, uh, and allowed the current to pull him underneath the keel of the boat whilst holding a GoPro above his head. And all of the lures that they used for the for the jig arms were glow in the dark. So you could see with through the camera lens, you could see all of these these glow in the dark jigs going down under the water, and then some of them pulling squids back up again. Um, and like that was that was probably the coolest the coolest shot that we got under the water. Um, no one ever even really thought. I think Pete is the only bloke that would ever say that he wanted to do something like that. Like, <laughs> It's so I would have done it. You know, like you get these, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that does sound kind of cool, but I would be worried about getting like trapped get, and entangled. Right? 
you get caught by one of these jigs, they're not going to stop. You know, they're just going to rip you, rip whatever they've caught out of the water. So it was, it was pretty yeah. extreme. But that is what that is what Pete does, you know. And um, Ian and his Ian and his crew used his footage a lot through all of their documentaries. That was probably the coolest, um, probably the coolest, coolest dive he did. Yeah. Um, obviously, we're in the middle of nowhere, so it wasn't like we were diving on coral and stuff like that. You know, we, we was in the middle of the ocean, so it was not not a great deal out in international waters in terms of like exploration dives yeah so i would say at this point if you guys you know do you have anything else you want to talk about i have one last question but anything else you want to add about earth race or modoc or the squid fleet I would say go to the galapagos islands and dive on gordon's rock it was the best dive i did with the whole time i was out there it was unbelievable so <laughs> i you just guys, want to throw you, that into the podcast you did you did get to like fun dive a bit i did yeah i was fortunate enough that i i was um i was able to do four fun dives on the galapagos while i was there um the dive on gordon's rock was with about 30 hammerhead sharks which was um absolutely amazing and that's what the galapagos is special for you know it's a highway for for marine wildlife moving up through south and central america to north america and um that is no matter where you dive in there it's going to be amazing so that was my that was one thing i wanted to throw in that's awesome thank you so i guess my last question is are you guys going to go back to the boat i've got to go back and see that dog to be fair i'm going to go and see upper (laughs) we love a boat dog we love a boat dog yeah yeah so so we have upper um on board he's essentially a working dog on board the boat he um is trekking and hold train dog so we take him in the jungle and we can track people down um with a like essentially put him onto a scent and, and he can go and track people down but he became like the working dog but also a bit of a pet dog and he is yeah. one of the coolest dogs you'll ever meet he's got this wicked personality so i've got to go boy. back and see him at least but no yeah, uh, i would i'd go back to, to train the boat. him to clean the hole yet though right i mean that's no no <laughs> Yeah, next he's a dog that doesn't like water, so quite, <laughs> no, quite I want it really. I would go back. I mean, like I think one of these things is like the more the more time you you're exposed to things like this, the more um, interest you have in in making a difference. You know, you kind of see some see stuff that happens around the world and almost have to get back involved again. It's hard to it's hard to completely yeah. ignore it. You know, to just go back into your normal groove and just forget forget everything that you've seen. So I think that's. It's, yeah, I will be going back. To that yeah. point um, about, you know, getting people more involved with it, what are some of the best ways that our listeners could support Earth Race and support you guys on the boat uh, if, if they wanted to? Um, donations. So Earth Race is essentially a non-profit organization. Well, it is a non-profit organization. Um, so what that essentially is, is that we don't get funds from the government. The government doesn't pay us to do what we do. Um, it is all volunteer based. So like me and Jake were saying earlier, Jake was there for a year and a half as a volunteer. I was there for two and a half years as a volunteer, not getting paid, just being a part of it. Mm. Um, get your accommodation and your food paid for by the ship, obviously. Um, but, uh, donations go crew, be a part of the crew, go yeah. and do it. Um, the, your volunteers, you pay for the time that you spend there. Um, and if you're a good fit, you don't really have to pay for any more time. Um, 
so I mean, yeah, it's it's a cool thing, and you get to go into parts of the world that tourists just aren't allowed to go into. Like the parts of the jungles in Costa Rica that we were doing patrols in that that normal tourists aren't allowed. And you see some real cool stuff and meet cool people too. Yeah, well traveled people. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. the amount of crew that we had come on that boat that was just all different walks of life. You gotta have a bit of a screw loose to go and work on a boat like that, and that's why we fitted in perfectly. So you get to meet a little bit. There's a little bit. You get to meet cool divers like myself. So yeah, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) There you go. You know, you just go up and say hi, and then all of a sudden you end up on on their podcast. <laughs> well, banana, well, we appreciate you guys coming on. Uh, we appreciate you guys coming on, and I know it's uh, it's late wherever you are. Um, yes. So we appreciate yeah, you guys you hopping guys. on with us. All right, guys, welcome back again to Free Descent. I'm Miles, and Jake's here too, and we have special guest Pete. Bethune, Pete, tell me if I'm saying your last name wrong. I feel like I've always said it that way, but how do you? No, really it's say fine, Mars. Speak Bethune, so all good. Bethune, okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Pete. Um, just a little introduction. Pete and I met when I was in Costa Rica, just the same as Jack and Josh. He is the captain of Modoc, the boat used for Earth Race conservation nonprofit and yeah that's just a little introduction pete if you want to go ahead just tell us a little bit about yourself your background and how you started earth race uh, so my my background was an engineer in the oil industry then uh 2006 i built a boat and set a record for a power boat to circumnavigate the globe fueling it on biodiesel from waste cooking oils then in 2009, went to Antarctica with Sea Shepherd to try and disrupt Japanese whaling. Uh, ended up going back to Japan and did five months in maximum security prison. Then when I finished up in prison, uh, got out, started my own NGO called Earth Race. And since then, we've been supporting government agencies mostly in, in terms of protecting national parks we do some work in the jungle and we do uh probably two-thirds of our work now is is working offshore so just supporting government agencies to stop illegal fishing or to support ranger stations in terms of construction and and uh delivery of of supplies and and things like that and uh so the last three years have been mostly Costa Rica we did one one trip out past Galapagos We've done a little bit of work in Colombia, a little bit of work in Ecuador, but most of my time these days is in uh, Costa Rica, which is uh, yeah, where, we, where we caught up with you a couple of years ago. Yeah, definitely. It was such a good time. The time that I was there, you guys were working with the Manet Rangers. Are you still doing that right now? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've got patrols. Next week, we've got the Needlefish Patrol in, up in Golfo Dulce, which is one of the greatest waterways on earth. Like when I first got here, I didn't appreciate how special this place is. Eh? Like we've got on, you know, we went out the other day, went out, caught ourselves some yellowfin tuna. We saw uh, about 10 whales as they're breeding here at the moment. We saw a couple of turtles. We saw two pods of dolphin. There were some false killer whales that came by. Um, this is one of the great waterways of the world. So we've got, anyway, patrols next week. Um, stopping sort of excess taking of needlefish and then we're out to Kanyo Island which is one of your old haunts I expect and and then we've, we've got patrols all up the Pacific coast through till Christmas 
Wow. Yeah, no, I remember it well. And I do remember, right? Is it, are the whales still there right now? I think I thought that the season had kind of ended. It's August. slowing. It's slowing down now. Like there's still there's still a few hanging around. Um, but I was talking to Phoebe, who runs a local uh, whale watch thing here, and she was saying that that in the next couple of weeks she doesn't think there'll be much remaining. So it's it's at the tail end of the end of the season now. And just for everybody's context, we're talking about the humpback whales that migrate to the Gulf of Duche of Costa Rica each year. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's both northern and southern hemisphere whales both yeah, it's, and- uh, it's one of the very few places that that happens so they early on in the season it's it's the southern hemisphere humpback whales that come in so the early ones the the first ones that turn up are the females that are in calf from the previous year they turn up have their babies and then the un- other ones that are coming here to have sex roll up about a month or so later and then there's a sort of a transition period where the, the Northern Hemisphere ones are still hanging around and then the Southern Hemisphere ones turn up. So it's one of only a couple of places in the world that you actually get both Northern and Southern Hemisphere whales. And and part of it is that the Gulf of Dulce in this area of Costa Rica is so conducive to, to then coming in and breeding. It's got beautiful shallow waters where the, the whales can come along. The water's relatively clear. Um, just turns out it's a real sweet spot for humpback breeding. Oh. So... Our big topic of this podcast episode specifically has to do with the squid fleet. And so... Oh, the squid fleet. Yeah, I've had a few adventures out there. I want to get into that. So we got to talk to Jack and Josh about it already, and they gave us a really good overview. But as the captain, we got to hear from you. I mean, start to finish, tell us about the squid fleet. How did you get into it? How were you approached for it? Yeah, gotcha. Okay, so we... We took a call from Ian Urbina. He's got a, a show called the, the Outlaw Ocean. He's got a book. He's got a podcast. I think he's, he's got a, some um, online material, regularly gets featured in the, in the New Yorker and in The Guardian. And he's, a bunch of his stuff is coming out right at the moment regarding that squid fleet. So he called us up and said, I need to get aboard some of these squid boats. And, you know, that's not, not easily done. Um, and he also wanted to document there's a, there's it's like a, an infamous group of boats. One of them got caught with two dead bodies in Argentina. Another one got came under gunfire offshore from Peru. Several of them got caught fishing illegally in the Falklands. And so he's got details of all these boats and their illegal activities and transgressions. And he's been following them sort of online and occasionally getting to see a couple of the boats when they were elsewhere, but he called me up and said, look, could you take us out west of Galapagos to go chasing these boats? So I was, and at the time I didn't have the funds for it. We managed to get a couple of sponsors on our side. He put in, I, I think $40,000 to help with the fuel and expenses or whatever. So we took him out. It was July last year. And it's one of the craziest things I've ever seen on the first night we started picking them up on radar and we were detecting them via satellite. So we kind of knew roughly where they were. And the squid fleet, it's over 500 boats. And these are big boats are between sort of 70 to 90 meters, heading for like some of them over 200 feet long, They're big boats. And there's over 500 of them in this relatively small area. And we turned up at night. The plan was to sneak in amongst them at night and then go and see if we could talk away on one of these boats. So we, we launched the Raptor, which is we've got a seven-meter rib on our ship. We put that in the water. We were like right in amongst the fleet, all of our lights off. We'd changed our MMSI number. So an MMSI 
number that goes out on your AIS, which is a it's a signal that says this is my ship name, this is my location and heading. We knew they'd be picking us up on radar, so we turned our AIS and we changed our MMSI number and our name to be a, a Chinese squid boat so that they wouldn't think we were any, anything was amiss. So we got it right in amongst the fleet, put the rib in the water, put the film crew in there, and then we went up to one of, one of these boats and said, hey, look, we're filming a cooking fishing show for New Zealand. Can we come aboard your ship? And, and the first couple said, you know, you know, a bunch of gringos in a boat. No, we don't, we don't want anything to do with you. And then one of them let us get aboard. And, and it was invaluable information. I remember talking to the captain and he said, he explained to us that he, he started fishing there like eight or nine years earlier. And he said the fishing was amazing. He said, you know, the fishing is so hard now. But he said they have nowhere else to go at this time of the year. And the, the tragedy of what's happening there is that squid fishery is being cleaned out. Like you put 500 boats there and the captain was saying now, I think each boat takes between three to five tonne huge volume of squid going out and there's no science to tell you what the what the squid fishery supports like squid is often very supportive of cetaceans dolphins and and whales for example there's no scientific research done on what is the impact that this this fishing is having other than the fishery is being cleaned out by these chinese anyway we got the film crew aboard a couple of the boats and then ian Urbina he wanted to get some underwater footage like it's it's an extraordinary sight. The, these boats have down the side five kilowatt lights. Each side has maybe 60 to 70, five kilowatt lights. This, you know, five kilowatts would, you know, that, that's more than enough to power a single home. And they would have between 150 and 200 of these down the sides of these ships. So there's so much light going in the water. They've got these automated like lures going up and right? down. Each, each side of the ship has something like 50 long lines with these lures that they drop down all in unison. It's all controlled by a PLC, highly automated. And so Ian was like, can, can I get some footage in the water? And I sort of looked around amongst some crew and said, I'll have a go. I'll have a crack at that. So I put the, sco- put the scuba on they, and I said, look, and this is in the middle of the night, you know, So you and there's a lot of current and waves out there. Like there's probably maybe eight to 10 foot waves coming through. So I said, look, and the current was going – from bow to stern. So I said to the guy, drop me off at the bow and I'll go right underneath the boat. And I had visions of getting an Emmy for this. Like I remember thinking the the sight looking underneath the boat or looking up to the two sides and seeing all of these lures coming up and down and this, this you know, several hundred kilowatts of lights all coming down. I remember thinking this is going to look amazing. So they gave me a camera. I clambered, clambered in about 20 meters in front of the bow and dropped down and then the current basically swept me, and I was a little bit, I was a little bit light, and so I was quite close to the to the keel of the boat, and I'm going underneath, and I'm sort of holding the camera as best I can, and it's the most extraordinary sight I've ever seen going down underneath this hull and seeing the barnacles and and shit on the bottom of the of the hull, these lures going up and down, these squid coming up and down, squirting all their ink out or whatever you. And then the the current swept me to about two-thirds of the way down the boat. And then suddenly I stop, and there's this loud noise from this engine. And I'm thinking, holy shit, they've just started up their main engine. So now I'm worried about being minced as I I go out the back. And so I start trying to swim out to the side. There's a surge of current sweeps me down, and I see ahead, here's this propeller with this light sort of glowing astern of the propeller. 
and I get spat out the back between the the blades of this propeller, spat out the back of the boat. I get caught up in one of their lines. So now I'm sort of getting getting my knife out and chopping out this fucking line and then popped out the surface about oh, 30 or 40 metres astern of the boat. The the fisherman whose who's line I got tangled up, he's yelling and screaming at me, pop out of the boat. Anyway, here's, here's your rib about 20 metres further back. So I clambered back and uh, climbed into the rib. And then I was thinking, I'm going to get an Emmy Award for this. And uh, <laughs> after we, we got back to the boat and looked at the footage and it was shit. Um, it was just the, the oh, GoPro. No. It, it just didn't pull in enough light. Like it was because of, in front of the camera was the dark of the hull, the the auto exposure adjusted to the dark of the hull. And so oh, even no. though it was sort of quite light at the side, it was just too dark to really go. Um, so anyway, it was, a, it was a, you know, the footage wasn't amazing. He, the, the footage from the side he used, like the articles are coming out at the moment and there's a bunch of videos on Ian Abina's website and the footage of me going down the side of the boat and getting shots of the lures coming up and down work. But my Emmy award-winning shot was not to be. <laughs> Miles and I have been watching the uh, the documentary that was posted in, in New Yorker uh, from Edo um, and, uh, and and yeah, his, okay. yeah, his, yeah, uh, that's that's co- that's the one. Colleague. So that footage of the, that footage yeah. of the boats and the drone shots was yeah, was us, was was our sort of yeah. work with them. They were a good team the to work with too. Like Ian Urbina, he's super professional. Um, he, he and he's got he's got a good crew. Um, so anyway, after that we um, we packed up and then word got around by the, you know daybreak. And, you know, next thing, Modoc and one of the boats, they've got a security vessel there, that turned up. Um, and they we spoke to them on the radio. But after that, all of the boats knew who we were. So we couldn't really go getting aboard any other boats after that. But we went around videoing and talking to the boats that were interesting for Ian Abina. So especially that one that had turned up with the dead bodies on board, the one that had got come under gunfire from, uh, I think, Argentina or Peru, I'm not sure which, and then the ones that got in trouble in the Falklands. So we, we sort of went around documenting the various other boats, the transshipper. So those boats, they go out there for several years and they have these big transshippers come in, pick up all the squid, drop off fuel and drop off supplies to the boat. So we, we basically sort of covered the whole fleet. And while we were aboard board that boat on the first night, Ian got a huge amount of information about the, the labour practices, the fact that they get paid six months in arrears, and so what happens if the crew leave, they lose that six months pay. So they, they end up being sort of indentured to the to the company. Um, it's hard for them to leave. Their passports are taken off them. They they encourage them to smoke these cigarettes. In fact, we, we went and tried buying some cigarettes off them. This is before we'd get out that we're a conservation NGO. And we got, we got a whole bunch of packets of these uh, very cheap Chinese cigarettes called Double Happiness. And what the what the captains do is they encourage their crew to smoke these. They sell them to them. They buy them super cheap. And what happens, some of the crew explained, when they get back to China, they owe more than they've made after two years at sea. And so now they've got to go back and do another stand. And now they're hooked on these these double happiness um, Chinese cigarettes sort of thing. Um, so, so Ian's a lot of his work, like he is interested in the conservation side, but he's also interested in the human rights side, like a lot of their crew, it could be argued they they are virtually slave laborers, and it's a it's a very tough environment for the for these men. Eh? That stuff that is not, I mean, it's shown in the documentary, but not in the detail that you just gave us either. I that's wow. Yeah, one one of the questions I actually had for you is what don't we see, and I think that's a brilliant example of some of the stuff you know 
that we don't see is 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 what 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 it means to the people that are doing it, uh, you know, doing the squid fishing. Here's that, one of the things I've found out over the years is that like I've like I've caught probably a thousand fishermen over the last ten years fishing illegally, and invariably they're nice people. Like fishing is a hard career, and if you offer enough money, there will always be people who are willing to come and fish, be it legally or illegally. Um, and, and, you know, for the most part, like Costa Rica, where we're working now, you know, guaranteed, we haven't done patrols in Golfo Dulce and Cano for about six months now. So it's the first time back here. We'll catch some guys fishing illegally next week for sure. But um, they're nice fishermen and we try to be very professional and civilized with them. And we're not anti-fishing, we're just anti-illegal fishing. But the interesting thing with the squid fleet, the it's technically it's sort of legal what they do. And what China has done is they're refusing to enter into any negotiations over regional fisheries agreement. So if you take most of the pelagic fish like yellowfin, albacore tuna, uh, all of the pelagic uh, fish, the bulk of them are governed by regional agreements that countries that have a vested interest get together, they negotiate and say, right, you can catch 100 tonne, we'll catch 100, and these guys can catch 50. And those agreements are normally try to be based on science so that you're fishing sustainably. But what's happened with the squid fishery is China has simply refused to enter into any negotiations with Ecuador, Costa Rica, Galapagos, Colombia, Panama, that all have a vested interest in this area. And and so it's really naughty what they're doing. They do venture into Ecuadorian waters sometimes on, on the, the Galapagos side. It's super naughty what they're doing. And China is is just running roughshod over these smaller countries here that don't have the political or economic clout to stand up to them. But when I get to meet the fishermen on the boats, invariably they're nice people. And I have sympathy for them. Like some of the boats you get on, they are rat-infested shitholes. And and it is a tough, tough job for you to be two years away from your family um, and and fishing in in very tough environments. And the seas out there suck. Like those seas, once you get sort of a couple hundred miles away from Galapagos, they are big seas all year round, and it's a miserable environment for these guys. And I, despite me not liking what they're doing out there, I do have sympathy for their position. Oh, so getting into the rough seas part of it, was it a rough journey from Costa Rica down to Ecuador, and then in turn from Ecuador out to just past the Galapagos, you know, in international waters where they were? Was it rough for you guys? So the the voyage down, so we went to Colombia first and uh, it was, I mean, we got maybe three to four meters on the beam at one stage, but not, there was little patches of, once you clock up big miles at sea, you know, you're always going to strike it a bit of rough, but it wasn't, I don't remember it being so bad, but the, the tough part, and then when we left Galapagos, went out, sorry, when we left Manta in Ecuador, went out to Galapagos, the voyage out there was pretty sweet, caught a few mahi mahi and tuna along the way. But from mm. Galapagos, once you get close to Galapagos and then get west of there, the seas are always big. And, you know, for, for you to do a day or two of rough seas is no big deal. Well, you know, not I've been at sea enough, it doesn't worry me. But what happens is it starts to break your crew down. And given we're, we're operating small boats, so we, we're taking this, this literally seven and a half metre rib. It's a, I mean, it's a former Navy SEAL rib, so it's a pretty robust boat, but it's only seven and a half metres or, you know, less than 30 foot and you're getting beaten up in these seas. And now we're pulling alongside these big 200-foot boats that are solid in the water, and we're bouncing up and down and trying to get our film crew and cameramen and 
and crew up the side of these boats. Like it is really dangerous, and it, it remains one of the most dangerous things that we do in addressing illegal fishing is. When you go climbing aboard a big boat and it's in rough seas, it's really, really dangerous. And, you know, we were lucky in this case. We end up squishing a couple. We squished one of the cameramen between the rib and, and this boat, and he sort of got a bit winded and still managed to climb up. We were, we were you know, lucky to get away with it. And, and Ian was, was adamant, like, I need to get these shots on the boat. For him, that was one of the money shots. And you see that in the article, you know, assuming you've seen the same videos that I've seen. Like, like the money shots were what we got on that boat. You know, it allows us to really, really tell that story of, of, of what's happening. And uh, but it was it was high risk. And I've had it. And what happens is, you know, invariably my crew are all volunteers, and you've got some new volunteers and some have been on the ship for a while. And some of them who are new, you never quite know what they're going to be like when the seas get rough. And so what happens is you start off with maybe fifteen crew, and then you get into big seas, and now you're down to you know nine or ten that are capable of functioning. <laughs> well, you know. And, and it ties up one or two looking after the the people who are seasick. Um, so yeah, it was it was a it was a tough voyage, but one of the more satisfying voyages I've been on. Like when you look at what Ian Beener is doing with that Outlaw Ocean project, it's shining a light on what the Chinese are doing. And and you know he's good on on the follow up. Like he's showing how a lot of a lot of the illegal activities and suspect activities that the Chinese are doing. He's following up and proving that supermarket chains in the U.S., for example, are busy buying those products. And, you know, we, we want our supermarkets to do their due diligence on fisheries and make sure that it's sustainably sourced and legally sourced. And there's already been suggestions of changes within American legislation to try and address this. So, you know, proud of the role that we, we managed to play in all of that. That's fantastic. Um, and, and we have we heard a, a bit of that already and, and seen some of it about how uh, you know, tracing the 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 squid that was caught out there to back to factories or, or, or processing in in China and then across the, the world to the U.S. and the EU. Um, so you do, you know, we do end up consuming some of this. I don't have the time to go and do that. I, like I, I chase <laughs> illegal fishermen offshore, but Ian, his crew are amazing at digging and digging and digging, and they're so good, you know, finding out public records doing you know they've got a few informants at times that go giving them material like he is like a he's like a robber's dog just getting stuck into that stuff and i i admire the fact that he's got the patience and wherewithal to do it eh? absolutely um you mentioned you know obviously there were some challenges and and, and dangerous moments getting the crew aboard the boats what did you ever feel like the you know you or the crew was in any danger just approaching the boats i mean you know we've all heard te- you know you even mentioned that you know, a couple of these boats have been involved in some some shady stuff and some run-ins and firefights and things like that. I mean, was that was that constantly on your mind, or, or was not, it less of an issue? Not so much with the Chinese fleet out there, partly because they've got a big security vessel that's there, and so I was more worried about about getting Ian onto those boats. Like after the first night, there was no way we would get on any of those boats, and the seas were big and. The, the 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 by far the most dangerous thing we did was put the crew in the small boat and try and and, and pull up to that Chinese boat like these these lines that they pulled in three lines to allow us pull alongside, but I can't drive forward or astern so so I'm just sitting there getting boat getting beaten up and crew climbing up the side. That was by far the highest risk. I mean I've I've come under gunfire a few times at different times chasing illegal fishing boats. Um, the last one was in the Philippines. Um, but in terms of our operations out chasing the Chinese squid, 
I, I thought it unlikely that they would they would try and fire upon us, but I was more worried about our ability on that first night to get the film crew safely on the boat and then to get them uh, back into our out into our rib, and then also to be able to board our boat safely. How long did the crew spend on the fishing fleet uh, on the fishing boat the first night, uh, getting footage and talking to the the fishermen? I think well, we would have been on there about four hours. Like it was a considerable period of time. That's a that's pretty substantial. I mean, I, you know, I when when I hear saw the video, I was like, I don't know, they must have been on there a while. So it seems like you know they got to know the crew, and you said they they were exchanging cigarettes and things like that. I mean, it sounds like pretty. It sounds like even even if you just got one chance at it, it sounds like a pretty worthwhile effort. Yeah, look, here's what happened. Once they once we gave them the story, we're filming a cooking show and a fishing cooking show for New Zealand. Can we come aboard? And we took them, we gave them some watermelon and some Coca-Cola, I believe. And there might've been something else we gave them. So, and we'll always do that. You know, even if, even if we catch illegal fishermen, we normally go giving them some gifts and try and ingratiate ourselves. And anyway, once, once we got aboard, going back to Ian Abina, he is a robber's dog, mate. Like once he got on there, there was no way he was going to leave until he had all the material that he wanted. And, um, he had. We had a guy on board who who was fluent uh, Cantonese, so we could, you know, we could talk and converse with him quite easily. And we were enthusiastic. We sort of, yeah, wow, that's amazing. You know, this is so cool. Oh my God, can I get a shot here? So, by being nice to the fishermen and giving them some gifts and and just sort of being really interested in what they had to say, and not not just digging for dirt, but initially. Just doing digging on general stuff, you know. How long have you guys been at sea? And and just having a general discussion, and then gradually, it evolves where you start digging deeper and deeper. And by then, you've sort of you know earned the trust of the of the fishermen. And our cameraman had free reign. Like they they gave us one of the uh, I think I believe he was the boatswain of the ship, which is a pretty senior position. And he went with um, Ben Blakenship, uh, one of our cameramen. He just took him all over the boat. So many of those shots you see, we were talking with the captain while Ben, the cameraman, was just going elsewhere on the ship filming everything. No, I just think it's awesome. And thank you so much for giving us all the lowdown on it. And it's just so cool what you guys do. I mean, to the squid fleet, but even just the patrols that you guys are going on in Costa Rica Every other, like, how often do you guys go out on patrols? What was it like every two weeks or something? At the moment, we we are booked up. I think between now and Christmas, we have seven days with no patrol, so it's pretty much six days a week at the moment. Um, that's right through to Christmas. Then we've got a week off at Christmas. One thing you could help us with, Miles, is all our crew are volunteers, and we get a reasonable chunk of them coming out of the state. So, and a fair chunk of our crew are divers. So there may be some people in your podcast who are interested in volunteering with us. So if you give out our website, earthrace.net, anyone who's interested in volunteering can uh, message me direct or get hold of our crew. That's totally. awesome. We'll put that, yeah, we'll that, put that was, link in the, in the description. Yeah, that was something that we were definitely going to do just because I know you guys are always looking for a good crew and I know divers are helpful as we heard with Jack and Josh earlier with cleaning the hole. And I said that was probably the one reason I didn't want to join the boat when Josh asked me because I knew I was going to be the hole cleaner. So no, you need you need to harden up, mate. Did you hear about that whale shark we had in Gulf of Dulce at night? Yes, I saw the video. I'm actually really jealous. I never saw it. I feel like everybody in that bay saw it. And the one time that it was out and I was out at the same time, I was leading another group 
off of a different boat and the yeah, other okay. boat died. I didn't see it. I was so upset. <laughs> Yeah, I tell you that, that, like, I, one of the things about Costa Rica, diving here is so diverse. Like, you know, we went to Cocos Island last year, which in my book is one of the top five dive sites in the world. But even the coastal thing, like Caño Island, we saw a whale shark this time last year out at Caño Island. Murcia Lago in the north has got some amazing diving. Like, Costa Rica is one of the great dive places in the world now, eh? Um, and, and, you know, some of the marine protected areas are starting to really show, like Caño Island. I, I, I first went there 10 years ago, and it was pretty average. Like, there was bugger all fish there. Now you go out there, and it's full of life. And, uh, yeah, last time we went out, there was a whale shark hanging around. We saw some oceanic hammerheads. There's always tuna and stuff hanging around out there in the dry season. So this is one of the great dive countries of the world, eh? No, it's, I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time there and I just can't wait to get back and back to the shop. Honestly, in Gulf of Duce, it's so untouched and undiscovered, which it made it the coolest part. I mean, I know you also had the battle with trying to get coordinates for the dive sites and we were trying to make the coordinates for the dive sites at the same time. So it was it was a really good time just discovering what was there to see and then also like discovering the different things that need to be protected that no one is talking about either. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think from here, I'll, our last question is, do you have a diving story at all? Like, did you get into diving as a kid? I mean, I know you're from New Zealand, so but like, how does diving tie in with your mission and your life's work now? My first dive was, I think it was about 18. I was with a friend who had done a, he'd done his paddy course or something and was qualified. And we, we went out in his dad's boat and he said, would you like to have a dive? And I was like, sure. Put a backpack on me and said, breathe through this. And we went down to 60 feet high. You know, I'm not recommending anyone to do this now. Um, and we ended up getting a big bag full of scallops. And after that, I was pretty hooked on diving. Eh? And I've been lucky enough, I've dived some of the, you know, I've, I've dived uh, all, all over the world. Some of the greatest places, Canyon Island, uh, Cocos Island. Uh, I've dived Minerva Reef, probably the best dive I've ever had. It's been, had a little bit, had a little bit now. Um, uh, and I, you know, diving remains a big part of my life. I free dive quite a lot now too. And, uh, you know, it's often free diving. I've got reasonable breath hold and I, I get as much of a kick out of free diving as I do scuba these days. We were talking about free diving because remember I took my free diving class and then I came on your boat and was hanging out with your crew and it ruined my second day of class the next day. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'll tell you, I've got one story. We, um, when, we, when we filmed the television show in Costa Rica, this was 2013, we had a um, we had a guy come and trained us on these military rebreathers that were it's a it's an OMG rebreather which is oxygen only. He trained us up on them, and we went into we got dropped off about maybe two kilometres offshore from Punta Arenas. So there were some boats we we got some intel. These boats were involved in shark finning, and we wanted to track them. And we tried walking in around the beach or whatever. But in those days, Punta Arenas was an angry little town. And there were dogs everywhere. And so it became impossible for us to get in there as gringos walking in a town where there's no gringos. So we got trained up on these rebreathers, dived in, had a, had a underwater scooter, a DPV thing, 
use that to um to to get in underneath the wharf there. Took a rebreathers off and I climbed up the mar- in the masthead of these two boats um, that were involved in shark finning. And after that, so then we we got back on the rebreathers and went back out and. Then we started tracking where these boats were going, and they went all the way to Cocos Island. We had no idea where they were going, and we didn't even—I didn't even know about Cocos Island in those days. So we tracked them out to Cocos Island. That led us to um, taking taking a small boat out there about a month later, and we ended up busting seven boats in one night, fishing illegally in Cocos Island, and that all stemmed from that rebreather mission where we managed to sneak onto the boats. And and put put turtle. It was turtle trackers actually. They make these little satellite trackers for turtles, and uh, that was that was what we put up in the masthead of these boats. Lucky to not get caught actually. Oh my gosh! So one of the things with scuba, you you find, and this applies to many things. It applies also when I watch people in the jungle for the first time. Here, when I take my volunteers on patrols, so scuba's the same. Initially, you're concentrating on the basics. You're concentrating on your buoyancy control and your breathing and this and that and the other thing. And so you, you're spatially very unaware because you're concentrating on all of the basics, your, your depth and all these other things. And then what happens as you get, I call it time on stick, which is a euphemism for, for stick welding or arc welding. It takes you time to master those things where they become second nature. So you automatically feel, hey, I'm just getting a little bit deep now. I'm, you know, I'm starting to get a bit, if you're on a rebreather, you know, I'm starting to have to work a little bit harder. So it takes a while for those to become second nature or subconscious activities. So when people first start diving and you take their mask off their head, some of them will freak out because they're too busy on all those other things. But then what happens with diving, once you, once you get on top of the basics, then your peripheral vision opens up enormously. And that's when it becomes much more enjoyable for you, where you, you, you're not having to think about your breathing and depth control. Things. You're just, you're, that's all become subconscious and second nature. And that's when you start really enjoying your diving. Totally. I, I think that's a, that's a great place to, uh, to land. I mean, thank you for everything, Pete. This has been awesome. I know you're a super busy guy. So thank you for taking the time and having some lunch with us and Sure. All good, Miles. And uh, Jake, nice to meet you, bro. Likewise, likewise. Uh, All right, you too. It's been great well, chatting to you. Yeah, right. appreciate Thanks, it, Pete. We uh, really appreciate you coming on. All right. See you guys. Bye.